Well, welcome back to the first time in 2022. I'm glad you're here. Um, don't know what exactly is going to happen this year. I haven't quite got that all figured out yet. I'm still sorting out what happened last year. I have far more questions than answers, but I know a lot of things. Uh, I know some things, and I know I'm glad you're here today. Thank you. I'm glad you're with us on the phone. I don't know why, but more people are on than they were 10 minutes ago. I don't know what happened there, but I'm glad you're with us. And I'm glad people that are li- I got I to gotta get used to thinking different. I'm glad wherever you're at today that you can be with us. I want to tell you uh, a few things about what I'm thinking about our church this next year. Oh, about five minutes worth of things that I'd like to say about our church. I kind of want to tell you my plans uh, that I feel right now. They may change, everything might change, but I want you to know what I'm thinking about preaching and kind of where my heart is right now in the immediate future. Uh, today we're coming back to the book of Revelation, and I talked a little bit about that already. We started that last summer, and uh, I am planning, I have it laid out, and it may change if I believe I should change it or circumstances change, may always change, but I want you to know I've laid out what I'm going to preach the next seven Sundays. And uh, they're all from the book of Revelation and these chapters that remain in the book. Um, We are at a very intensive place uh, where we're at today in our study. For those of you that have been a part, you know a little bit as we were uh, basically in chapter 6 and 7 before we took a break from that for Thanksgiving and Christmas, and so I want to pick up basically at that place, Lord willing, uh, in the next seven Sundays, talk about, uh, the next four Sundays really talk about the events that lead up to uh, the final uh, judgment of God. Um, they're all heavy. Today's, I think, might be the heavy, the second heaviest chapter that in the book of Revelation to me. Uh, so that's we're going to jump in today in a few minutes. But I want, I want to tell you what I plan to do in March unless I feel that the Lord would lead in a different direction. I am already working on a series about God's plan for the church in 2020. What kind of church does God want here in Mifflinburg in 2020? And what does He want from me? Um, I am interested, and of course I think about a lot as your pastor, some questions. How are we going to live out Christianity in this day today? How are we going to live it out based on what's happened the last two years or what might happen next year? Whether it's predictable or not, I don't know. But what does God want for us as God's people in Mifflinburg? What kind of influence does God want us to have? What kind of priorities do we need to have in our church? Two specific questions. And I'll be asking you these questions quite a bit beginning in March. Something like this. How are you going to get closer to God this year? Wherever you're at, whether you're far away, but you're kind of thinking about it, and you're, you have a lot of questions, and you're not sure what you believe, and you're wondering, or you've been a Christian a long, long time, and your faith is pretty secure and strong, but yet you wonder... Where is God in 
my circumstances. All of us, I want us to think about that question here in the next few months, especially beginning in March. And, uh, how are we going to get closer to God? How are you going to get closer to God this year? Second question is this. What kind of church does God want us to be here? I think about that a lot. What does God want for the Mifflinburg Nazarene Church in its 79th year or so of ministry? It's going to be like it was 60 years ago in some ways, but there's a lot of ways that it's not going to be anything like it was 60 years in some ways. Holding on to what we need to hold on to. Holding on to the important things. But also, God, how do we have influence in this day and among many people who are more and more in our community are churchless, they're Bibleless, they don't know what God's grace is, and how do we serve Him? And so the question is, what kind of church does God want us to be in 2022? And so I'm going to be uh, already working on some ideas about challenging us in those two questions beginning in March. I want you to know about that today. So today we're back to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. Here's a general outline that I am using to really organize kind of my thinking and my preaching and my, my understanding in this sermon series. I've had things like this up here before, but that was several months ago. So I'm going to review a couple things today just so you're here. You know what I'm thinking today and the next few Sundays. This is kind of the outline I'm following in my preaching here. We started out with the seven churches. Seven Sundays we spent looking at the messages to the seven churches in the book of Revelation back in August and September. We also talked about John's vision and just how the book of Revelation came about and to whom was it revealed and, and dream or direct message and John's view into heaven. And we, we talked about that in the series. And then we entered into this time period that I just called the end times, chapter 6 through 19. That's where we're at now. We were in there for several weeks, and for the next seven, no, five Sundays, we're going to be here at the end times, chapter 6 through 19. We're already in the middle of it, and we're going to spend some more Sundays on that. And I'd like to spend three Sundays, basically, uh, in one in chapter 20 and chapter 21 and 22. Again, that's a rough outline. It may change. Uh, the Lord may lead different or circumstances could be different. But I just want you to know those are kind of the, the topics of, of where I plan. I'm thinking that we're going we're gonna to work at uh, uh, over the next few weeks. Actually, in January and, and most of February. We have seen a framework of God's revelation for the end of time. We've seen some of the details. We haven't seen it all, but we've started into that time period where we've seen enough to get some, some real understanding of where time is going for humanity and what's going to happen to humanity. One of the interesting things we've seen throughout the book of Revelation is the number seven, which is kind of a unique thing to think about, the number seven, but all throughout the book of Revelation, the number seven appears many times, 23 times, I believe, if I remember that number. And God somehow speaks to us in a framework that includes the, the revelation 
of seven. Seven churches. Seven angels. Seven candlesticks. Seven seals. Seven trumpets. Later on, we'll have seven bowls. Seven plagues. And so on. And so as we read even today, we're going to read about some numbers. And just, if you can, think of it in terms of God seems to reveal in these chapters, 6 through 19 especially, reveals the future through this series of the number seven of certain things that we will continue to look at. Seven is uniquely a number that God conducts the book of Revelation. I know if you just all of a sudden pick up the book of Revelation, you've never read the Bible or seen it, you think, what, what's up with all the sevens? Well, that's the order that God gives us here. God is a God of order. One of the things that I get from reading the book of Revelation from chapter 1 to verse 22 is the realization and the reminder that God is a God of order. And though things seem very chaotic to me, things may seem absolutely uh, out of control in some ways in our world, and it does seem like that to me, Certainly, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, and and some things are predictable and will happen, some things are predictable and won't happen, and so forth and so on. But as chaotic, as unpredictable as our world is, I want to say today that God is God. And He will carry the world and all that is in it until the very end of time and into eternity, and He knows what's going to happen. So the fact that we may be confused by all this stuff that we see in the world, or for that matter, what we read here in these chapters in the book of Revelation that that brings up probably far more questions than they do answer, remember that God is a God of order. In fact, when I go back to the very first verse of the Bible, I'm reminded that God is a God of order. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Listen to this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Before God acted in verse 3, the world was in complete disorder. It was in a formless... I don't know how to describe it. It had no order. And then God in verse 3 spoke about light. And He began a process of giving order to the world at that moment of the beginning of creation He started giving order to the world. And all of the Bible is God establishing order again. And so everything we read in the Bible is about God first in the creative process of the light and the stars and the land and the plants and the animals. And in the creation of man, God is giving order to what verse 1 and 2 describes as formless and empty. And now I want you to fast forward. See, back then God stepped in to bring light and order and meaning to creation. You might say it like this. God gave purpose to His creation. And He's been working on and in His creation ever since then. Now we think of the book of Revelation and we fast forward now. God has been giving purpose and meaning to His creation. In the book of Revelation, God is bringing 
to completion the order that he is establishing. And so we might look around and think, man, there's just no rhyme or reason to what's happening in our world. But it's a part of God's foreknowledge of what's going to happen in our world. And God's mind and God's choice, the book of Revelation is bringing to fullness God's purpose. There are several things that come out of that purpose of God that strike me. Three things that I want to mention here. That Revelation speaks to me, me about. God is a God of order. Number one is He's a holy God. The book of Revelation specifically reminds me of the holiness of God. The purity of God. The righteousness of God. There is a right and a wrong and it is eternal. And God put within our time right and wrong. He allowed good and evil. He allowed Satan to rebel in heaven. I don't understand why. The why of that, I don't know. But I know the reality is, is that a holy God allowed sin. Because the holy God created us with a free will so that we could choose. Again, why did God do that? There's a lot of thought about why, but the reality is that a holy God revealed Himself and created man in his own image. But it did not make him less holy. He is other. He is different. He is above. He is eternal. He is infinite. He always was. He always will be. He is a holy God. He is without flaw. He is without defect. He is out without the possibility to be wrong. We read throughout the Bible and we even wrestle with the concept... He is unchanging. He is unchangeable. He is holy. He is good. His nature is described throughout the Bible. His characteristics of kindness and patience, goodness. Also, He is described as being love. God is love. That's who He is and what He is in His holiness. He also hates evil. We're reminded when we read the book of Revelation of how God feels about sin. How He feels about evil in our world. We might think God doesn't know what's going on. Sometimes we might get the impression that God is surprised by the murder. The anger and the hostility and the lust. Greed and selfishness. No. God knows about it. And He hates it. He always has hated sin. He hates evil. The first thing I think about Revelation is that He's a holy God. The second thing is this. He is a powerful God. Revelation shows that. Whether you believe it or not, Revelation shows exactly the power of God. And you can shake your fist at God and say, I don't believe it. I don't think He's going to do it. I don't think it's going to happen. That's what the people said in Noah's day. And He brought the flood. That's what people said in many times in history. Moses and the Israelites. Oh, God can't do anything about it. He did on the day He chose to. And I'll tell you another place that we see it constantly. I mean, it's part of life is there's a day that every one of us is going to take a last breath. You cannot beat that. 
You might not have a flood in your life. You're not going to go in the ground with the Israelites who didn't do what God told them to. God may not strike you dead as He has several people in the Bible, but I'll tell you this, if nothing else, you're going to take your last breath. And it will be your last breath. And God is in control. And He has power. Someday, these events in Revelation are going to take place. But even maybe before that, in your life, someday, you will take your last breath. That's been magnified and uh, become more real probably to a lot of people in the last two years. More than any time in my life, uh, you know, maybe during a plague or the World War One or two, others that were alive then felt the same way or genocide in Africa or other places where so many people have died at, at one time or earthquake, tsunamis, whatever. But I just want to say to us that there's going to be a day and every single one of us are going to face the God who revealed the book of Revelation. We're not going to be able to get away from it. He gives free will to man. But He holds that free will within the bounds of time. We think, what is free will? I think free will is something important to think about in the book of Revelation. I think free will is going to become something different. It's going to be something transformed when we get to heaven. After the end of time. That's another subject, but... You have the choice now to choose God. And we're going to see this in our Scripture we're going to read today. He is a holy God. He is a powerful God. The third thing that I want to say before we read our text is, (coughs) Revelation shows us the magnitude and the destructiveness and the consequences and the deceitfulness of sin. I'm afraid we live in a society where sin isn't much of a word anymore. People think it's relative. They think, well, you can believe whatever you want to. Our Bible doesn't tell us that. Our Bible tells us that God has defined sin. And if we think we can change what God has said for eternity, uh, we're really small, really small compared to an infinite God who holds us in His hands. The magnitude of sin, the pervasiveness of sin, the destructive... I mean, we all see the destructiveness of sin in our world and around us and consequences in our lives and the lives of other people. The deceitfulness of sin. How Satan wants us to think that sin doesn't matter. Sin doesn't matter to God. The truth is... The book of Revelation, as much to me as anywhere else in the Bible, will remind us of the magnitude of sin in God's eyes and what it means. Revelation chapter 6 through 19. I talked about this being the area that we're in today and will be for the next four Sundays. This time period begins after the rapture. I believe. Some people view it differently, but I'm presenting what I think is the best guess from the Scripture about when 
chapter 6 through 19 happens. I believe that God, Christ is going to come and draw the Christians from the earth to heaven. And then the time of Revelation chapter 6 verse 19, through chapter 19 will take place. There's a lot to think about just that, but that's the time frame. It begins with chapter 6 in the opening of the scroll by the Lamb. We spent two Sundays on that particular event. That's when it starts, this time period. Revelation chapter 6 through 19, 14 chapters. Think of this. 14 chapters covers about seven years. And that's kind of heavy to think about. All that, seven years, and then you got what's next that's a thousand years? You know, it's kind of like that. Chapter 6 through 19. So when, I know a while back when I was reading Revelation, I thought, oh, it must be hundreds and hundreds of years, these events. No. Man, they're taking place in seven years, I think, if I understand. And I'll say why and a little bit about the timing in a little bit. But So what we're going to talk about today in the next four weeks are in a seven-year period. Actually, what we talked about back in, in October of the four horsemen is the first three and a half years of that, I believe. So really, where we start today is the last three and a half years of what I call the end of time. I want to say the first three and a half years really seems to describe the consequences of sin for mankind. The four horsemen are what happens because man has his way. And I think of it like this. God withdraws His Holy Spirit during this time so man can do anything he wants to. Man has unbridled free will during this time that we're going to read about today. And we're going to see what happens when man has his own way. I mean, we know it now. We know what happens when a child that's very young is allowed to have their own way. We know what happens. You know what happens. When that free will is allowed to reign and choose, then there's certain things that happen inside spiritually. It's called the sin nature that's a part of who we are. Well, in this time period, I believe the Holy Spirit is going to withdraw. And man will do what he chooses and wants to do. And it will be a terribly ugly time. There also will be Christians who will become Christians during this time. That's a different study. That's not today. And then finally, these last three and a half years describe the judgment of God. First, the consequences of man. You could say man's own brings it on himself. But then, as we read today, we turn to the specific judgment of God. Uh, next in this. The seven-year period. The first half, again, the four horsemen. If you're interested in that and you weren't here or you don't remember, go back and you can read that in chapter 6 and chapter 7. The second half is our text today, chapter 8. We've now come to that second half of the seven-year period. After the rapture, the first half has wreaked horrible, 
horrible things that have happened on earth in death. First, there is the horsemen who brought peace without a sword. And then there was war. And then there was famine. And then there was death. Three and a half year period. Now we come to chapter 8. If you want to read along, turn to chapter 8, verse 1. This is heavy. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of His throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who held the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down to the earth. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the waters and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss, and out of the smoke locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During these days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. An unbelievable four events take place during this time, the seventh seal. It's preceded, I notice, by silence. It's the only place in the Bible I, I can think of of anything comparable where there's silence. I mean, there's times of quiet. God tells us to quiet ourselves. And, you know, there's references to silence. This is the only place in the Bible with anything comparable to this description. Silence in heaven. In heaven. Think of what that meant. You know, we just read in the last chapter, a long time ago we read in the last chapter, 
that 10,000 times 10,000 angels were singing around the throne of God. And all the creatures and the elders and all the people that were under the altar were singing praises to God. Can you imagine how loud, you know, I don't know, decibels or, you know, is that some, you know, I'm not sure, but do you know of all the descriptions of the the loudness of heaven and the praise that's going on in heaven physically or spiritually, whatever that is, but we have in the opening of the seventh seal the total opposite of the praise of God. We have silence. Can you imagine what that silence would have sounded like? The unprecedented silence? Man. We've all been in places where we've it's been fairly quiet, or maybe we've tried to get as quiet as we can, and yet some of you have probably been in, in recording studios or booths, you know, rooms where you go in and they close the door on you and you can't hear anything. It's amazing. If you've ever been in a place like that, it is really incredible. They have people that want to set the record to be in the longest, but the problem is they go crazy after a few hours and they want out. Unprecedented silence. Think of the meaning of that, the magnitude of that. Why? Why would there be such silence? I think one thing is the deep respect and awe for what God is doing. I mean, we know that heaven is full of respect and awe. We think of how those angels and those, all those beings and creatures that are there, uh, what they are perceiving and sensing. I just think of what they must have been feeling at that point when there's silence in heaven. Deep respect and, and all. And then I think also of the heaviness of what's going to happen. I think they know by then in heaven what's going to happen. I think they sense that. They know that. Maybe they've known. Maybe God's revealed to them revelations far be- long before He did with John. I don't know. But we get to this point in chapter 8. And there's silence in heaven. That's pretty amazing to me. The silence. The heaviness of judgment. And then I think a third thing that comes to my mind is the time has come. The time has finally come. Again, we wonder sometimes if it's ever going to happen that we read about in Scripture. But they've, they've... all through the Bible, people have thought that. There's always been a day and a time when it happens. Can you just imagine? The time has come. I also notice another reference here to the importance of prayers of God's people. Verse 4 says, The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Somehow, this tells me just in a little clip of something that I don't understand, I don't know the fullness of, I certainly am interested, I've read different thinking and tried to meditate on what this means, but do you know that your prayers are going to reach God at this moment when this happens? I get the impression this is all the prayers of God's people. Man, think of that. Think of the truth of that that the prayers of God's people are going to rise up to God just before the first angel blows his trumpet. 
Somehow it's all connected. I don't know how it's all connected, but it's connected. And how important prayer is. The opening of the seven seals unleashes the trumpet blasts of seven angels. I've been talking about seven. Seven leads to seven. Seven seals. The seventh seal then is the, is the blowing of the seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets are going to be the seven bowls. But now just realize that the seventh seal leads to the blast of the seven angels in succession and they're coming here. They are the angels of God's wrath. The first four uh, angels of God's wrath we're told what happens. Verse 6. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and was hurled down to earth, and a third of the earth was burned up. I don't know exactly how God's going to do it. He's going to do it like this, but how He does it like this, I'm not sure, but this is easy to, to picture. It's easy to imagine with fires and places of the world that are on fire today somewhere. I don't know. I don't think California is right now because of the winter time, but you know, all over the world there's fires at different times. I, I, I don't see any, any barrier at all to God bringing a fire to destroy a third of the world, a third of the population, a third of buildings and forests. And uh, I could see that happening so quick and easy. That's the first one. The second one, is the sea is turned to blood. There's going to be something that's going to, it says like a mountain, somehow that, I don't, that could be a volcano for all I know. I, I don't know what, what it is, but it says that somehow something like a mountain falls into the sea and all the area around it becomes poisoned and all the fish die. The ships that are in that area are sunk and, and all that. God's wrath. The third one, wormwood, something falls from the heavens. Can certainly think it being a meteor. What people say happened uh, something like the Yucatan Peninsula a long time ago. I don't know. The fresh water on earth becomes bitter. Up to a third of the whole earth's fresh water is taken like quickly. You imagine the agony and the suffering that will take place. And the fourth angel the sky, the stars, the sun, uh, everything's thrown into disarray that God started on the six days of creation in Genesis chapter 1. All of that is being turned over now in Revelation chapter 8 and 9. All the order that God had established back then now is being changed by God at the end of time. The four angels. And then there's the fifth trumpet in chapter 9. Verse 1, The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. The fifth trumpet described something uh, so horrible that our imaginations wrestle with what this is. Somehow, God's going to release the consequences of sin and what sin is in its horribleness. Somehow, the creatures that exist and have followed Satan, Lucifer, are going to be released. 
physically locusts that will devour but not kill. Apollyon the beast. Is this Satan? Some think it is. There's some variety with the interpretation of all these beings and creatures and I don't want to get caught up in any one interpretation but whatever Apollyon is, the deceiver, the destroyer, the word means to destroy. And when Apollyon comes, there'll be such fear never known before in the history of time. Fear. This is not just physical fear of death. This is, this is fear of what sin will bring outside of God's plan of grace. The fifth angel. Then the sixth trumpet will bring its plagues. The short version is going to bring the death of a third of mankind. The sixth angel. The sixth trumpet. One third of all mankind. I don't know how many people will live on the earth then. I don't know. Totally guessing by then. Whether it's more or less than now, I, I don't know. you imagine... How many people died of COVID or, or whatever's related to all the people dying? You know, I don't know how many. I don't know how many it is. I don't know how many million across. I don't know. I don't have that number. About 800,000 I've read in our country. I don't know. There's like 7 billion people on the earth today. One third of them. Dead. Within... I think a few weeks or a few months. I'm not sure. The only reference to time we have is the fifth angel, and it says they were, not, they were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. Five months out of this three and a half years, the locusts are torturing those, the fifth trumpet. And then you have the plagues. A third of mankind destroyed judgment. Of those who remain at this time of God's wrath, is again another extremely heavy verse in this chapter. So John sees this vision and all these events take place and then and then he's given this of those who are not killed by these things, of those who are against God and have not repented. Now look at verse 20 if you have your Bible open. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, and bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Now look at verse 21. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. There's going to be something that's a horrible consequence of hardening your heart to God. You become so hard that even when God is showing you the path to believe, to accept His forgiveness, there will be a hardening of the hearts. Man, that's... So what do we say in the midst 
in the path of these two chapters about God's judgment. There is only one solution for us when we read chapter 8 and 9. There's only one thing that we can say about God's judgment in this day, in 2022, that we can say about chapters 8 and 9. Whether or not we'll be around or, or the rapture will take place you know, in our lifetime, I don't know. There's only one thing that we can say. This is God's answer to sin. The only way that the problem of sin is resolved is because Jesus sent His own Son on the cross and died for that horrible, wicked evilness that's going on in our world. When Jesus went on the cross, the book of Isaiah says God has taken Him and laid on Him the iniquity of us all. So that all of hell, all of chapter 8, all of chapter 9, all of everything we read here that's so hard for us to grasp or seems unspeakable or it seems incredibly... um, Can this really be happening this way? All of that was laid on Jesus when He went to the cross. So when Jesus rose from the dead and the disciples saw Him, they knew the power that was in the cross, the resurrection of Jesus. It's more powerful than the book of Revelation. It's God's total power and holiness together comes together on the cross. So that's why it's so important that every one of us come to that place of kneeling our hearts, physically maybe, but we come and say, God, yes, I believe You. I believe You that You sent Jesus to die for my sins. So I accept that. And I embrace the cross. I take Your forgiveness that You offer I mean, I don't want Revelation 8 and 9 anyway. But when you take Jesus, you say, whatever it is, God, whatever this world has ended up being, I want the path that You have made for me. And that's the path of the cross. It's the path of God saying, I love You so much that I sent My only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's a choice that every one of us have. It's a choice to make. It's a choice for today that you choose Jesus. That you choose the cross. You choose to believe what God has said. So today, I'm going to invite you to believe. To ask Jesus to forgive you for your sins and to accept Him by faith Say, I trust you, God. I don't know what's going to happen here, but I trust you. And I know that you sent me. Today, I just want to give you an invitation. We're going to receive communion. Now, would you stand with me? Communion is an opportunity to affirm that faith in Jesus. It's not the only place or time that you can become a Christian. 
Man, when you, it's so different for everybody. You can do it by yourself, with someone, in church, out of church. But today's a good day to say, Jesus, I know you're the answer to Revelation chapter 8 and 9. And I choose that today. I don't know if, I don't remember if I said this earlier. Those that are on the phone or at home, I just invite you to take a piece of bread or a cracker. This is symbolic. We know that. It's not in the physical power of this that makes it the blood and bread body of Jesus. It's in the truth of the symbolism. So today, by faith, I want to invite you at home or wherever you're at or here today to take the bread. On the night that Jesus died, He took the bread. And when He broke it, He gave it to His disciples and said, Take and eat, for this is My body broken for you. Dear Jesus, help us to know Your truth about sin about who's in control and about the order that you've made. God, help us to understand that you invite us to come to you. You invite us to seek your forgiveness. Today, we thank you for that. Thank you for the broken body of Jesus. I pray that we would receive it in faith, having taken the time to be sure that we understand how important and precious this is, I pray. In Jesus' name, I invite you to take the bread and eat it. And on the same night as Jesus died, He took the cup. The cup represents the blood of Jesus. He came down on the cross, and blood is the and blood is the life of is the life. And so we symbolically, as Jesus did, the night He was betrayed he passed the cup do this in remembrance of me so I invite you to take the cup and drink it in faith today amen thank you for being here today thank you for listening I just challenge you to hear what God says and he can help to guide your life thank you so much for being here I hope you have a good day today God bless. You're dismissed.